Is it rolling, Bob? Talking Dylan. He's your host, Lucas Hare. He's your host, Kerry Shale. But he's our special guest, singer-songwriter Robin Hitchcock. They say that patriotism is the last refuge to which a scoundrel clings. Steal a little, and they'll put you in jail. Steal a lot, and they'll make you a king. There's only one step down from here, baby. It's called the land of permanent bliss. What's a sweetheart like you doing in a dump like this? <laughs> you make it sound... I know that quote, but I, it sounds... I'm not sure what it sounds like. Very threatening. What do you make of that quote? Life is threatening, you know. I mean, I think one of the reasons that Dylan has continued to ring true over the decades is because there is a kind of acceptance and an understanding of the worst-case scenario Mm. in him. Um, You know, if, as frequently happens these days, the end of the world is imminent, somehow Dylan's... Songs still seem there's some sort of it's what I call the comfort of doom, you know. Mm. It's just that he's always managed to do it in, in a way that it in some way is enjoyable, not always, but you know, there's there's usually some some fun to it. It's quite, um, it's quite you know, encouraging, I think, to have someone confirm the worst case scenario to you if you yourself had gone there mentally and thought it was maybe just you being bleak or, or cynical, and someone else does it much more poetically. I mean, is it? It's not just me. You're, I mean, exactly. Yeah, I yeah. mean, you're not alone in right. I mean, well, I find that perversely thing, optimistic. You know? Yeah, I mean, that particular song. Where do you? It seems it's always seemed to me to be sort of two songs at once because there's a sweetheart yeah. like you thing, and then for instance, there's that is excoriation of politicians. Uh, at the beginning, I've, is, I've never used that word before. No, I don't even know what it means. Sounds yeah, good. Yeah, You're it saying does. it well. Yeah, yeah. thank you. Um, but where do you? Yeah, th- that difference between the personal and, in this case, seemingly the political. Well, I mean, people are in politics, and politics are in people. I don't think they're really. I mean, that you aren't going to have a world that is entirely political or a world that's mm. entirely personal. Poli- what what we call politics or economics are abstractions mm. of just human response and behavior, really. Mm. So old Bob has been fairly good at not being too didactic over the years. I mean, it's it's all done from the point of view of an individual, Mm-hmm. Or, or many individuals, you yeah. know. And that quote is um, Samuel Johnson initially, isn't it? It's also in the script. Patriotism is the yeah. last refuge of a scoundrel. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> it's also in Paths of Glory, the, the Stanley Kubrick film. Is it? I have a problem with patriotism. I, I feel it makes me uneasy. Yeah. But... Never a good sign. Particularly now. But I think I misunderstood that quote for years. I always thought patriotism is the last refuge of a scoundrel does that mean that if you're a patriot you are a scoundrel and then post 2016 farage trump i suddenly realized that the point is if you take refuge in patriotism that's the problem yeah if you yeah. use it as a weapon then yes. it becomes problematic and then and then that quote i was much clearer about that quote afterwards yeah no it's just like putting on a costume that you know will make you unassailable yeah. So yeah. it's never a good sign. There may be genuine patriots, but they're probably not people like that. Mm. <laughs> yeah, well, it saved so many scoundrels. It saved Margaret Thatcher when the Falklands War saved her, uh, her government. But yes. Yeah. Is Infidels one of your favorite albums, or is it just that song or those lyrics that leap out? 
No, I think what's interesting f- to me about that is that I think there's some great lyrics, but I think personally he sounds very unhappy. But my whole my whole Bob theory is that he never recovered from the divorce and that he mm. plunged deeper and deeper and deeper down his own sort of personal mine shaft of bleakness and he's somewhere now right at the bottom in sort of swathed in irony and a million miles from everybody but still transmitting yeah, when you find <laughs> but, out you've uh, lost everything you can, or could always yeah, lose it yeah I think so I mean my other big big Bob Dylan um, theory is that he's basically about loss and that it's all the way along from sort of man of constant sorrow and girl from the north country up to um, roll on John and things. Mm. It's all about what's gone, mm. what you've lost. And as you said, that quote, when you think you've lost everything, you find out you can lose a little more. Yeah. And that's another thing that makes him resonate. No matter how kind of self-absorbed he seems or, you know, just remote. Mm. Um, you can't make out what he's saying. There's no expression on his mm. face when he plays live. A man who was an incredibly powerful communicator when he started is now like a lamppost, you know, a mute lamppost. You have to, what was that? What was that, Gramps? Oh! Um, and I think that's because so many people have, have you know, he is, as a friend of mine said, he's, no one has ever been so scrutinised. Yeah. Frank Sinatra, Paul McCartney, they're famous. Elvis Presley, they were famous. It's like, you know, oh, wow, let me touch. Wow, look at that famous person <laughs> only 400 yards away. Mm. You know, but, um, but Dylan, it was a bit different because he, was, he knew something and he contributed to this myth about, you know, he definitely seemed like he knew something. So our whole generation... Um, sort of went after him to see what it was and mm. uh, I don't think he ever recovered from that I mean he's not everybody would recognize him now but there's still that you know there's just look at look at the volume of you know this isn't the first Bob Dylan podcast I've done I mean you know there's just people who think um, people of taste and speculation and lover of the arts you know dylan there he is mm. but i think you're right about the plunging to the bottom and never quite making it up again because on my way here i i was just fooling around with spotify and i found a a playlist called bob dylan love songs <laughs> and so i went "Ooh, okay take a look at that now funnily enough they didn't have anything from nashville skyline where he actually has a couple of love songs yes but uh, so they basically had all the ones but basically none of them you know, they were all dark as deeply as black. Un- deeply unhappy. And yes, I, I, li- I listened to one that I, when you see something in a playlist, sometimes you 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 listen in a different way. Mm. So I listened to the one that's on Together Through Life. It's mm. This Dream of You. I think mm. that's what it is. And uh, it, it's all about illusion. And yeah. it's about as love songy as he's gotten in the last 20 years. Mm. And it's... It's not a love song at all. It's it's about loss and illusion and despair, yeah. uh, and it's it's one of his lighter love songs. Well, even uh, as you said, you know the love songs of Nashville Skyline. I threw it all away. <laughs> this is not uh, this is not an upbeat sentence. Well, actually, it? the no, the only one that I I can see is 
completely upbeat is the one that starts, is it rolling, Bob, uh, to be alone with you. Mm. Uh, and I, I turn to that for comfort. I find it extremely moving. I find it because it, it, there are no shadows that mm. I can find in that particular love song. Yeah. But it's one of the few. Well, I guess that was an attempted no shadows era, wasn't it? Mm. Um, you know, he, he really, I mean, he was almost... It was almost like people have been saying, you know, what does it all mean, Bob? What's the answer and stuff? And so for a brief point, he was sort of going, oh, it's love, man. Mm. Family, love is all Love is. somebody, you know, yeah. which, I mean, oddly was sort of what the Beatles were saying. But I think the Beatles and Dylan swapped places in the 60s. You know, by the end, certainly John and George were very serious individuals who had a lot to say about the world. Mm-hmm. And old Bob was actually writing two-minute love songs. <laughs> they just sort of changed places, you know. Yeah, I was thinking about uh, Lennon just today again, and I was thinking he sort of took on them. People started calling him a genius. The difference, the huge difference between him and Bob is he started saying, yeah, you know, I probably am a genius. And he took, you know, that he did say that to Jan Wenner on Rolling Stone in that famous interview. He said, mm-hmm. yeah, I guess you'd have to call me a genius. And Bob was probably chortling away thinking, yeah, you call him a genius. Go yeah. with it, man. You take mm. it. Take it off my shoulder. Serve yourself, indeed. Uh, well, you were talking about the Isle of Wight earlier, Robin, about oh, the yeah. fact that you were there when you were 16. Was that the first time you saw Bob live and and where did you stand with Bob his work at that point well it was the first time I'd seen Dylan and it was also the first time anyone had seen him for three years it was his first advertised concert and in a rather dreamlike way it was happening about 30 miles from where I lived I lived in Hampshire uh, Winchester mm. in Hampshire mm. and um and uh, suddenly the Melody Maker headline was Bob Dylan's coming to the Isle of Wight. And then my father, bless him, God knows how he knew, and then pre-internet days said, mm. we'll be going down to Southampton tomorrow morning at quarter to eight. And I said, what's up, Dad? He said, the Dylan tickets are going on sale. So um, I got there, I went there, and you know, it was also the first time I'd been to a huge festival with... You know, 200,000 groovers. It was Mm -hmm. the first time such a thing had occurred in Britain. I think Woodstock happened slightly before or slightly after. It was around the same time. You know, and the locals were all putting up windows, signs in their windows, you know, saying, no hippies, we don't serve people with long hair unless we can make some money off you. And then they Mm -hmm. realized actually there was a lot, a lot of coin to be had Mm -hmm. from us hairy folk. But geez, and then Dylan. I just I always think of it as like a dream where you're a dream where you're going to meet your loved one and when they turn up they don't look anything they're not oh god but that's not her you know yeah oh that's not him or you know that's not Steve that's not Emma um you know and and it was like that it was so, and I mean, we, everybody knew that he had gone Nashville skyline. Mm-hmm. And I was 16, so this stuff really mattered. It was at the end of the 60s, I'd been lucky enough to sort of come in on music when I was 10 and the Beatles, again, my dad turned up with a transistor radio and said, I think you might like this. He was very on it when it came to things like yeah, that. Right. And, um, you know, I just, the, the Beatles were were 
metamorphosing year by year and then Dylan was and then it was clear that they were parallel and then they were cross-pollinating mm. and, you know, interacting to an extraordinarily high degree. And um, I remember somebody listening to that, you know, the 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 Judas gig, yeah. and we had a bootleg of that mm. and, and sort of about 1971 and someone said, wow, he's just singing like John Lennon, isn't he? You can really hear the <laughs> Lennon in his voice. I thought, wow, you know, but it, <clears throat> so all that, you know, it's very exciting. So I got to 16 and, and, and it was 1969 and the, the revolution had peaked. Dylan was one of the first people to start going backwards, arguably. John Wesley Harding was came right at the end of 67. Everybody's caftans were exhausted. They were looking for somewhere to go. And as soon as that came out, the, the Rolling Stones and the Beatles just went back. Mm, yeah. uh, you know, it all, everything had, what then continued was sort of prog. But, you know, the, the kind of Icarus moment had happened. We got as far as we could. Sid Barrett had had, had a breakdown. Dylan had fallen off the bike and gone just retreated, retreated musically, retreated. He became, you know, deliberately unchallenging, which was a, also a great way to to um, wrongfoot his fans. So there he was, you know, in the white suit, singing these old songs in his new voice. And it was just like watching your beloved get off the train, but it's not them. And, um, and he was late, wasn't he, as well? Well, he was... Everything was late because they all had to... Oh, some weird thing. They all had to get into the press enclosure through a through a caravan, and then they all had to come out again. So one of my friends was the press officer, and so he just stood there, sat there with his... I don't even rubber stamping them. So the whole lot, you know, would have gone through Keith Richards and John and Yoko and all the most important people in the world, the rockistocracy, their yeah. only visit to the Isle of Wight, <laughs> Seringo Star as as would be, and um, my friend Bob was the press officer. and uh, So there was a, like an hour delay, and then he only played for like, I don't know, an hour and a bit. Yeah. So it was, people were still arriving when, in bus loads when he'd finished, because he'd said something like, well, we may be on stage for three hours, who knows? Hmm. But it it didn't, I mean, looking back on it, it was a, daft thing to do he hadn't played any shows in three years and then to go and headline his biggest ever gig without any warm-ups you know now you do a week somewhere yeah or you even, know you yeah. dylan would hire dylan would rehearse you know dylan, and yeah. you would get used to it and you i mean it yeah the band sound like they're shitting themselves well, i was gonna say were you aware that he was playing with the same musicians in a different universe you mean the band mm. I didn't know about the band. I mean, I knew about the band as um, the band. You know, those records had come out. Yeah. But I didn't... I'd never heard anything he'd done with them before. Because mm. the basement tapes, I don't think... Were, no, they weren't. No, there was no, a bootleg, no. but I hadn't heard it. And you hadn't heard the... I the hadn't heard the free trade hall, <clears throat> no. And, I mean, when I heard those cuts on uh, Self-Portrait... I thought they, the mix sounded really awful. I mean, could you actually hear what he was singing? You could hear everything quite well. There were no screens. I mean, that was a rather beautiful thing. So I, this sort of white pencil on the horizon was Bob Dylan, St. Bob, King Bob, the man who knew. 
Mm. And um, I mean, I know I was riveted because I sat there with a what was that? A number six filter tip cigarette in my hand, and I didn't light it for a whole seventy minutes. <laughs> I just stared. <laughs> And I didn't do my usual trick of rushing off to find a bathroom somewhere. You know, I just, I just stared, mm. and everybody. We you know we could hear. I don't think the mix was particularly bad. It mm. was. I mean, there weren't there weren't overdriven instruments, so nobody mm. was. They were all very quiet. I don't think his guitar was even mic'd up. He just had a mic on it. Mm. Mm. Just returning back to the thing you said about the Beatles, a Dylan crossover just fascinates me because you made a really good point on another podcast that Bob Dylan wrote Dear Landlord and then in rapid succession the Beatles wrote Dear Prudence and the Rolling Stones wrote Dear Doctor. Oh, totally. And it never occurred to me. It's so obvious once oh, you pointed it out. You didn't have enough spare time in 1968 <laughs> sitting there staring at record sleeves. <laughs> That's true. What else was there for us to do? In, you know, we didn't have Vietnam. Mm. Um no, I, I. You could just see it, and you could see it the way the whole thing. There was an incredible acceleration in in those days, and a lot of people, you know, all we can do is sort of drone into our senile years about. Oh blimey, it was so fast! Oh yeah, it was blimey! Oh yeah, look at it! Oh, life was speedy in them days. It was. I had that Brian Jones in the back of the coffin once. Oh, I'll tell you, blimey, tell you a thing or two. Where was I? I'm only telling him. It's good that so, you're using your regular voice now. You can stop putting on that funny Robin Hitchcock voice. Oh, yeah, <laughs> the real me. <laughs> but it, it, it was like, it was just the acceleration and the way the world now seems to have gone into colour in 1965. Mm. I remember it was actually in colour before, but in retrospect, I kind of I remember everything in black and white and that. So you, you could just see the way they affected each other and you could see that something peaked in... In about 1967, 66 even, some people, you know, John mm. Savage would say that, that re the real 1967 was actually 1966. Yeah. You know, Bob Dylan actually wrote Visions of Johanna in 1965, and someone will come up and say, no, it was the first draft from, you know, Big Sur in 1964. Good God. <laughs> and, you know, John and Paul wrote Day in the Life in the back of a van in Hamburg or something. It all happened earlier than you mm. thought. Under the spell of tea. Uh, yeah, yeah, you know, and... but. It was definitely, you could feel things going back. You and as you feel say, the momentum dying, and you could, that, I felt that was part of it, you know. And I love the notion that you, you came up with just now that they swaps, because I think I remember reading that You've Got to Hide Your Love Away is the first all acoustic Beatles recording. And 1965, what's Bob Dylan doing? He's plugging in at Newport, and he's constantly yes. one step ahead, yes. isn't he? Well, they're, I mean, I don't know, they're just sort of. It's just an interesting dance, really. Yeah. I mean, except there were four Beatles and there was one Dylan. Um, that's the thing. I suppose he had to do all that himself, you know, wait for wait. Mm. Mm. Um, and you can't just say Dylan and Lennon. And, and if there was a genius in the Beatles musically, it was probably Paul McCartney. But part of the genius of the Beatles was that they managed to have this, you know, egg with three creatures in it hatching out at the same time it was mm. a sort of monstrous freakish thing that this contained three brilliant songwriters and anchored by Ringo who was an extremely charismatic man with mm. a, a fantastic style of drumming um, 
But you know, we, yeah. I, I, I was a completely ordinary Beatles fan, and that is to say, I bought every record f- pretty much from the beginning. Were you around and when it was, were you, I mean, did I they was like, measure, it was your life measured out in them? Totally. Yeah. M- much more than actually than in Bob Dylan, because I, yeah. I, I didn't p- quite pick up on Dylan for a while, even though he was there. But, but I, I lived for the new Beatles album, and they were like a couple a year. But yeah. I also didn't realize, certainly didn't realize, that when Lennon sang The Dream Is Over, I mm. I thought, is it? What? What? Did I miss something? Because I was, <laughs> no, because I... How you know, old were you? Well, I'm about your age. Oh, okay. And, right. I, and I, yeah. I, I, I... So when things came out, even Magical Mystery Tour, which was somehow weirdly disappointing, but I, I, I still thought, come on, let's you know, this is still happening. Yeah. And and then Abby wrote, I thought, yeah, yeah, it's happening. It's totally happening. Yes. And let it be. I thought, well, maybe not so good, but it's still happening. God damn it. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. the Beatles have broken up. And I thought, I don't care. It's still happening. It's, it's it, <laughs> yeah. This is not happening. <laughs> I, I refused to believe it was dead. And then, then when a few years later, I read that, you know, when George Harrison went to hate Ashbury in, in 67, I think it was, mm. and everyone agreed that it was dead. I read that about 1970 yeah. and I thought really was it dead I didn't know it was dead nobody told me it was dead I I just it took me years to you know many probably a decade to realize that it was dead it was actually it was actually Plastic Ono Band it was actually when he said the dream is over and he said I don't believe in Zimmerman yeah I I, I, I was I, I was totally confused because, of course it had been dead for years but <laughs> but nobody told me and nobody told most of the fans my age, I certainly, did you kind of, in 67, did you, you were saying that you kind of knew that it was? No, I wasn't that prescient. I knew, I think I could tell by 1969 Mm -hmm. that collectively it was running out of steam, that that a lot of it was actually a shuck, you know, you could just, um, you know, I'd go to see gigs and I'd just see, you'd just see three hairy blokes getting up and playing jamming for 10 minutes in E and uh, that was it you know and you were supposed to like it or take Mm. a drug that would make you groove to it Mm. Um, maybe musicians were more understood more you know that that it was over well I hadn't become one yet but I Mm. could I could just feel that the kind of when they were the right side of their drugs 66 67 Mm. they were very Mm. inventive and then they just got quite boring or incapable I mean, you're talking about the Beatles, or everybody. Mm. But I mean, you know, to different degrees. Paul McCartney really, his talent was unaffected in lots of ways. But even he, you know, the zeitgeist wasn't there for him to write "Fool on the Hill" or um, "She's Leaving Home." He was sort of back down to "Let Him In" or something, which isn't mm. bad, but it hasn't got that same vibe. Um, Lennon was sort of actually quite burned out i don't think i don't mm. think any of us realized how badly clobbered by drugs mm. he'd been and how you know they kept kind of coming back to bite him on the ass as mm. we say in mm. australia yeah. and uh, it was you don't know i mean it's just but it it's interesting because i feel like it applies to the whole of our culture and I just happened to be alive at that time. I was 14 in 67, 13, 13 in 66. So, you know, my sort of psychedelic bar mitzvah, if you like, was uh, was as Hendrix was coming over to Britain, as the Floyd was starting to play in West London, as 
the Beatles were recording Tomorrow Never Knows, you know, and that mm. incredible rush. Mm. And in a way, you can't keep rushing, you know. Like, the whole 70s was a hangover, really. Well, 66, they both put the brakes on, didn't they? The Beatles at Candlestick Park and Dylan at the Albert Hall, and both just... They took a change of direction because they needed to, to reassess things. Well, it was interesting because they both stopped touring at yeah. around the same time. Mm. Yeah. Within, was like within a month. When was the Yeah, May crash? and August, 66, I think, mm. was when they both gave their, their final concerts. Dylan, and then Dylan had the crash in July. Uh, I and I think, well, it was the Beatles' end of August or end Yeah, of, I believe so, August the 20-something. Uh, it's definitely yeah. kind of, you know, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, I, I came, you, you, were you based around London or you got to, into London to see gigs? I get into London. I was, I was sort of a bit more home counties, but I, mm. I, I did come and, you know, I saw traffic in Hyde Park when I was 15, which was... For younger funny. listeners, that's not a, a report about traffic. <laughs> no, it's a... Pa- sorry, it's, it's a, a group band of Stephen Winwood. Yes, yeah, yeah. Beat combo the traffic, traffic and the nice, and, and that was good. The PA was, was you know, adequate. You could hear what was happening. Mm. Um, you know, and I was just... All I wanted to do in life was, was grow my hair and discover the meaning of life. But mm. I think when you live... You know, I'm from Winnipeg in Canada. The peg. I don't know if you're the peg. Yeah, you gig yeah. There. I do gig in the peg, <laughs> well, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but the peg is still was, back then, the middle of nowhere. It still kind of is. Yes. And, and so when people came to town... Yeah, uh, you know, it would change your life. It was just because you know, I saw people like Canned Heat and, wow. and even you know, and Steppenwolf, and every time because we yeah. didn't get everybody because we never got the Beatles. Although I did see the Stones in, they in about sixty. It was it was about sixty five. Lady Jane had just come you, out. That's oh, right. We, no, we 66. found out, didn't we? Because we looked it up. Did I think it, it was February sixty six or something. You yeah. said you saw them. In yeah. I saw them at the Winnipeg Arena, and I saw uh, you know Mick Jagger when when Brian Jones was playing the dulcimer, and oh, Mick they Jagger did that would say, live, did they? Yeah, wow. and and uh, he'd say, you know, I pledge my troth to Lady Jane, and he'd do this fancy, oh yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. sort of uh, Court, con, yeah, courtly bow, yeah. bow. Oh, yeah. and the girls immediately wet themselves like you could hear them wetting themselves but every time that happened you know your life would change it wasn't just like oh well i went to see traffic in hyde park and then next week i'm going to see whoever every time you know even canned heat you know seeing canned heat which are just kind of not a great blues band but you'd see them of course as life went on like i would see them on drugs and uh, so i remember and then in coffins yes. and then yes exactly no but you th- you thought you know i remember seeing steppenwolf while i was tripping yeah and uh, it was just like i had no idea they were that good or profound you know who, who knew <laughs> but but th- that's the difference between you know we're so spoiled in big cities we can we can you can see what's really happening like you can see people's you know the music sort of getting less good but in 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 places like winnipeg you're you're so grateful for just right, so the, for the buzz coming to town it, it you know it took longer for the ripples to yes exactly to get there yeah. and the the right i mean the ripples were still going out when the long after the stone had sunk to the bottom as it were mm. but i mean in a way that's what happens you know mm. so i mean there's still positive emanations from the 60s coming out now even though in a way we've been in a kind of regressive state for about 50 years um certainly 40 since reagan and thatcher Mm. and um but you know there's still things but now it's more the four takes the form of new age or or you know 
Yeah, yeah. What's, what's wow. the vibe? You live in Nashville now. What's, what's yeah. the sort of vibe there, I'm wondering? Um, musical vibe. Well, the musical vibe in East Nashville, where I'm based, for a while I just felt it was very uh, sort of Neil Young 1975 ditch trilogy. You nice. go, in, go into a bar, the thing you're most likely to hear is a very good band playing a version of Cortez the Killer. <laughs> <laughs> And Sounds everyone like is sort of <laughs> about as hairy, but a bit less smoky. Mm. Um, and but the music, you know, it's 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 a musician's hive, Nashville, particularly East Nashville, where I am. So it's full of people like myself taking off and landing and meeting up in coffee shops. And um, but I mean the Americana phenomenon, I suppose, means that there's. There's a seam of music that is sort of basically sort of 50 years old, really. You know, it goes back to Sweetheart of the Rodeo, the band, Graham Parsons, um, all that kind of thing, sort of un, kind of in, intact and untouched. I mean, it's <laughs> largely a white middle-class phenomenon. Mm. Um very old, old-fashioned. You Didn't know. Some, I've forgotten who told me this that, that Joe Boyd was asked about Americana. He said, "What you mean, American music by white people?" Yes, well, it, it is. Right, it is quite yeah. a white label, isn't it? It's extremely white. Yeah. yeah. What about? Um, do you ever bump into anybody who worked with Dylan back in the day in Nashville? Uh, I've seen Charlie McCoy a couple of times playing. He's still mm. you know, doing harmonica and bass and all sorts of things. And there was, yeah, there was a Dillathon at the Country Music Hall of Fame, and they had Charlie McCoy and Wayne Moss, mm-hmm. um, who were both in pretty good nick. Wayne Moss rocked up with his fiance, <laughs> and I guess they're both in their mid seventies. I mean, Charlie and Charlie McCoy and, and Wayne Moss. Yeah, it was it was interesting. I mean, I. It was a sort of public chat thing, so there was a was celebrating who, an you know, anniversary, was a, and there was a lot of blonde on blonde fiftieth mm. anniversary mm. stuff. So, so they had me and um, a guy who'd written a book on blonde on blonde, and these two guys who'd played on it. And uh, what did I, I glean from it? Um, well, I was just asking. How what they made of Dylan, you know, but given that he mm. was producing this, the, the kind of songs he was that nobody else was doing anything like at the time, you know, his most original, but commercial pieces. So it, Blonde on Blonde was actually a pop record, mm. you know, to the horror of many of his old fans. But there it was, and these Nashville cats had played on it, and they. You know, I said, I noticed a lot of the songs start with the drum, uh, the drums. Was that a kind of arrangement decision? And one of them said, oh, do they? Oh, I suppose they do, yes. And I said, I said what, what did you think having these songs played? You know, Dylan's there with Al Cooper and Robbie Robertson to help interpret. Um, and Charlie McCoy was the band leader, so he, they would have talked to Charlie... And Charlie would have explained to all the others what to do. So Charlie went through, there was a sort of filtering process. Mm. 
Dylan didn't have to sort of turn up and wave his arms about and go, no, 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 you know, I want the chickens on the left and the roosters on the right or something, you know. So it, he was, he could do his charismatic mumbling to his hench people. But um, Charlie McCoy, and he said, oh, do you mean, had we worked with weirder people than Dylan? Oh, definitely. Can <laughs> <laughs> you mention any names? No, but he just said, you know, I mean, I'm sure he said that before. But what he wa- I think what he wanted to convey was that he, he was not phased by it. Hmm. You know, he, he was obviously a, you know, he was a young band leader then, and he sort of is now, 50, 50 plus years later. Hmm. Apparently it was him on Desolation Row playing the guitar. That's right, yeah. And based on John Wesley Harding, so he straddles those three albums. Yes, but that guitar's really beautiful it's on beautiful, Desolation. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, I was uh, stunned when I looked. I somehow thought it was Bruce Langhorne. Well, know, I was, like, uh, presumed it was Mike Bloomfield, but yeah. it can't be. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, talk about things that you've gleaned. You've played all of John Wesley Harding. You've played all of the 1966 electric set. Ah, yes. Um, did, you, did you learn anything about that music from playing it that you hadn't from listening to it? Um, well, the guitar's quite out of tune in John Wesley Hardy. Um, but, uh, but mine often is on stage too. I, mm. I, uh, not particularly. I mean, the, the band, I suppose the thing is that the band was really at the heart of it all, but he didn't actually make a record with the band at any point then, did he, until Planet Waves. Yeah, Planet Waves is the only time. Mm. And I think that was really kind of the tail end, you know. It's not Mm. not a great record, not great songs, and there's some nice little bits in it. But but I think hearing, I don't know what you thought when you first heard the Free Trade record, Mm. but, I mean, I thought that was a revelation, just hearing that sound. Well, listening to you do it in... An English accent rather than American places it right um, back to its its punk roots. I think it, it it requires remarkably little change to make it sound like a punk record. And actually, listening to it sung in an English accent well, seemed to bring that home to me. Was I singing in an English accent? Well, I wasn't you, you doing sort of my do best a, Bob. Oh. <laughs> I don't think I've, I know. I, 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 do you do like a Bob? No, I don't try. But my instinct when I sing somebody else's song is to sing it like they do. I'm yeah. not an interpreter. I'm a channeler. Yeah. Mm. So I try and get the feel of um, somebody. I mean, I think when I sing a song enough, my own voice creeps in, whereas when I first do it, Mm. you know, I will try and sing whatever it is, you know, before you slip into, or, you know, (laughs) John Wesley Harding. Sadly, my voice too is shot, but it's that... (laughs) I want Helder in my arms, you know. Um, or I, to do a Lennon, I'd have to ban, bellow from the other end of the room, but this huge hangar we're in. But yeah. no, I I mean, I, that record, actually, the you mean the, the live one on, on the, the elusive Robin Sings, yep, that's the yeah, one, which yeah. I think is deliciously out of... Can you get it you anywhere? Get it on Spotify. It's on Spotify. And I'm afraid th- you weren't in a penny, but uh, yeah. we, we've been listening to it on Spotify lately. Is it 1996? Uh, is that about right? It was 1996. It was with a band called Homer in huh. the borderline, and we had... They had a great guitarist called Andrew Claridge, and I think that's what makes the record, was that I don't know how much Andrew knew of um, that era, but he 
he kind of echoes Robbie Robertson. He does. It's really fierce, the guitar. Yeah. yeah. We did another one without him somewhere, and it wasn't nearly as good. Andrew was... The, uh, and, you know, I had... So Andrew and I were both playing a bit of lead. We didn't have a, any keyboards, but the rhythm section was okay, you know. But mm. we, I think the the fire in that is is Andrew and and me playing electrics. And by that stage, I had memorised every nuance of how it was sung. So mm. you know the whole. You can really see that music. You know, it, it's 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 visual. Um, so. You can hear, especially Hudson and um, Garth Hudson playing those. Like, Tom Thumb's blues is utterly unrecognizable, mm. but it's totally yeah. brilliant. And you can hear Dylan's <clears throat> voice sort of. <sighs> Robertson's guitar, he plays something really incandescent and then just drags, takes the note away at the end. Yeah. And then Dylan comes in and goes. Ah, started out on Burgundy. And <laughs> yeah, it, I, yeah. I, it's just I can sort of see that Dylan Robertson and and Garth Hudson. I, I can sort of see what they're playing like fireworks. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, it. I mean, you know. Do you know that quote from Phil Oakes? He said, "Oh, Dylan's like pure LSD on stage." You know that. Yeah. I mean, I, I I wouldn't have. I don't know. What did you think? Well, that makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, to me, I, I've just been. Whenever I I try to imagine what it's like to sing those songs, particularly the ones from, say, Blonde on Blonde, to yeah. sing, you know, all the the, the great epics, and. It, well, you know, we haven't mentioned Shakespeare for a while. Oh, God, <laughs> I think, no. but, but it is, but it is, you know, it's the language is so fabulous. Mm. Uh, does it conjure up anything more than the words when you find yourself singing them? I mean, well, I mean, I, it does to me when I listen to them. You know, um, uh, Ezra Pound and T.S. Eliot fighting in the Captain's Tower. I, I've got a very strong vision yes. of that. Mm. It's it is like LSD because it, it's full of. That particular, you know, Desolation Row is full of... It's like a movie. It's like the weirdest movie. But what does it feel like to sing it? Oh, well, it feels very natural, but that's because I've... It's so in my DNA. Mm. You know, I mean, it's there when when I die. It's along with my memories. It's whatever will go into the filing system, into the iCloud or whatever. You know, (laughs) it'll be that. It'll be those... I mean, the first I ever heard of Ezra Pound was that song. Mm. Um, and just, boy, it feels... I mean, D- Dylan's always been able to write words that sing well, even if there's a lot of... Sometimes there's a lot of words in a crammed into a line. Mm. Somehow he'll find the phrasing to make it work. Mm. He's There's nothing gauche about it. There's nothing awkward he just he's a natural always has been and that's something that's still intact and i guess when he does a cover as well he sort of finds a way of phrasing well my favorite example of that is the in in like a running stone when he says you better take your precious gifts and from 66 to the present day he's always sung you'd better take your precious gifts and things and it rhymes with diamond rings and it seems so effortless now not exchanging <clears throat> all, oh he's exchanging all precious, precious gifts, gifts and things t- and things is yeah. not on highway 61 revisited oh right mm. but from 66 onwards oh. it's it's such a perfect rhythmical yeah. phrase that he's obviously discovered it and then just you know these things evolve as, as you go 
Well, I think for him, the paint doesn't dry on his compositions. Mm. I mean, he's he's the anti-McCartney in so many ways. Mm. Paul McCartney comes up with a perfect arrangement, and it will and it stays mm. there for fifty mm. plus years. Um, Dylan, anything that's more than twenty years old, kind of just becomes shapeless. That's why I don't really enjoy seeing him do anything, anything old. Mm. <laughs> but you know, because if it is, it's unrecognisable, but not necessarily in a good way. <laughs> but um, you, everyone has different feelings about it. Yeah. How do you feel about him? Well, first of all, have your paths ever crossed or come close to crossing? No, I, I've never met him, and I wouldn't want to because mm. um, I don't think he needs to meet people. And I've met plenty of people who've met him and he tends to play with people mm. because he can because mm. everybody's weird with him mm. you know everyone is a mouse to his cat mm. catch me kill me make it slow <laughs> you know and um and you know i mean if you're a good-looking dame then he might hit on you and there could be some interest but i think otherwise you know you're just some ghoul or spook unless for some reason he admires you know i mean maybe dylan's got all my records and he's dying to meet me <laughs> maybe but um i i i wouldn't think so but uh no no the only time i nearly met him by accident was i was on a kibbutz in 1971 in israel of course not far from Actually, I think it was equidistant from uh, Haifa and Tel Aviv. But anyway, I was a huge Dylan fan, and um, I just, you know, was inventing myself as the man with the guitar and going around the place and sort of, you know, trying to play the guitar at people in public and, as a result, not getting many girlfriends. But I would do that. And one day I decided to have a shower before lunch, which I never normally did, and I went and I tried to have a shower, but actually the water was cold. So I put my clothes back on again and thought, oh, blimey, okay. And I just, I went to the cafeteria and they said, blimey, you just missed Bob Dylan. <laughs> he was in Padute's office. And, and she was the, the manager. I said, what, Bob Dylan? I said, yeah, he was here with his wife. He's, he's here. And I said, you know, get out of here or whatever it was but i had actually just missed him he was in israel the same time as me and then there were pictures of him on the beach and by the wailing wall it was time he was sort of mm, looking that. into his jewishness kind of right after the um the nashville skyline phase and he mm. was just obviously a quite strong his his identity uh, my favourite quote about him is from some friend of Dylan's, allegedly, is, um, there's so many sides to Bob, he's practically round. <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, is why you can endlessly discuss him, really. Mm. Um, I, I don't know. Have you have you had any near misses? Oh, God, God no. no. I mean, we've interviewed people on the podcast who, you know, we, we did uh, talk to Jeff Slate, who did the liner notes for the, uh, the recent uh, Blood on the Tracks. Oh yeah, uh, Michael Gray met him and David uh, Hepworth met him. Yeah, we've we've yeah. Yeah, we've heard David Hepworth's horror story about trying to uh, interview him, uh, oh. which was uh, typical. You know, there was a giant dog slobbering, and uh, it was it was in the eighties, so it was, it was like the worst possible time to interview him. And uh, uh, I think it's scar- David is a thoroughgoing pro, but it's I think it kind of scarred him really. No, I remember reading the interview he did. David Hepworth did for for Q. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember just seeing that he was just saying that Dylan didn't, really didn't care. 
seems extremely yeah, that's uninterested interested in the whole process. Yeah, uh, I think everyone says um, he's just not. He doesn't care what people think of him. Yeah, he does. For I mean, it was a very good uh, article I remember because David wrote about what it's like to be shitting yourself in front of Bob Dylan, mm. and uh, mm. so it was. It was actually one of his more uh, personal and intimate yeah, sort of yeah. things about himself, mm. rather than Dylan, yeah. who gave absolutely nothing away. But no. I, I know I've, I've often people have said to me, you know, oh, wouldn't it be good to get him on your podcast? And I thought. No, David Hepworth. No, no, Bob Dylan. Because <laughs> you know, I mean, we've Why had David Hepworth. Why would he want to talk about? Him? Well, exactly. <laughs> I said, I said, I said to people, we talk about Bob Dylan. The one person you can't do that with is Bob Dylan. And anyway, I wouldn't want to meet him because everything I like about Bob Dylan is probably going to disappear the minute I meet him because I'm interested in his music and his, yeah. and what he's created and what he's done. And you'd have, but you have talked to Bob Dylan about shoes or yeah, we'll talk to him about something or, else. That'd be fine. You know, maybe, nasal hair, anything. Maybe but. nasal hair would be a good. Yeah. yeah, that's that's think. my yeah, number one. Yeah, I just yeah. snuck it well, in there. That's my yeah. fantasy. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, right. There's a great place uh, I go to in Nashville called <laughs> Little Polly Riptide, and she sorts my nose out. I often think I wish old Bob was here. <laughs> Oh. I think we should. I think we've got to end with that. <laughs> Sorry, that's, I oh. snuck up on that. But oh, yeah. Um, unless unless you do have, uh, you want to end with something profound. I don't know. I, I have no no. I, I love the idea to of, open. I love yeah. the idea of ending with you getting your nasal hair trimmed in Nashville. If that's okay. <laughs> oh, it's it's all a consequence of listening to records. Little did I know. <laughs> Is it rolling, Bob? Talking, Dylan is recorded in the Bagby and Lamar suite at Lip Sync Studios. Engineered by Mark Langley-Smith and produced by Robin Guys. We're on Twitter at IsItRollingPod. Music is by Sam Hare. Yes, I received your letter yesterday, about the time the doorknob broke. When you asked me how I was doing, was that some kind of joke? All these people that you mention, yes, I know them, they're quite lame. I had to rearrange their faces and give them all another name.